This makes me so happy. So my, my, my wife and I were taking a walk around um, Fresh Pond this morning uh, before I was kind of going out and, and going to visit the counts and and we were she was asking what we were going to play for the opening of this episode and I was explaining what the episode was and I said well Adam really wants to hear Justin Bieber and obviously I'm not going to play Justin Bieber. <laughs> Um, I have a moral objection and I don't want to get sued. So I found the next best thing um, and I actually started Googling um, Despacito Waltz, Despacito Polka, Despacito um, Accordion. Um, even though that is a, a Luis Fonsi song and Justin Bieber just kind of made it famous um, in America or in the United States anyways. But I came across this song called Muy Despacito, and it connects, and this is by uh, this cat by the name of Pedro Infante, which I've never called a Mexican folkloric singer and actor cat, but I've always wanted to you know, describe someone as this cat. Uh, he was an actor in Mexico. He's from the um, region of Sinaloa, the province of Sinaloa, the state, uh, from a town called Mazatlan. And he is singing a famous ranchera song. And what makes ranchera so cool and what connects ranchero with uh, Spain and with Alsace is that rancheras were a combination of obviously Spanish music from Spain, more of kind of folkloric music, um, but there is some influence of the Romi people or the, uh, which are the people from you know Eastern Europe and Arabic people that created flamenco. And you can get that with some of the chord changes. But the rhythm is Viennan Walt, which you see a lot in, obviously, Switzerland. You see it in um, Austria. You see it in Poland, in Germany, and in France, in particular, Alsace. And there is a huge German connection and um, French connection. Uh, the big holiday we talk about is... Um, the Cinco de Mayo, and that was a battle, the Battle of Pueblo fought against Maximilian, who was French. Um, and so you have all these different cultures between, in Mexico, that once again, like Spain is an amalgamation of different cultures, uh, Latin America is as well. And I thought it'd be really fun to start with something that would make my mother belt out loud with such joy and heartache in her voice. And that's exactly what that that song is there. That's, that's a very long way of explaining that, but that's what that song. That's all. That's that's kind of our brand for you, though. That, that that's that, that's what you do. So it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what what I took from that, just to kind of take that into a, a, a more succinct point, is that uh, we have this you know Mexican folk singer hybrid song, right? That connects Spain and Alsace and Mexico and Justin Bieber. Uh, ipso facto, transitive property, Manny actually likes Justin Bieber and is not morally opposed to him. So that's what I took from that. <laughs> you know, when I was 17, I found my first love. Is that how it goes? Something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. So uh, that was Manny Gonzalez, obviously. I'm Adam Cataldo. This is Bottom of the Bottle. Thank you all for listening. Again, 9, 11, 13. Those of you who are not my mom, uh, my mom was thanked on Instagram last week, even though we established that she doesn't listen, which was awesome. She did not see that, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, you know, because we're, we're still having fun with it. Uh, did we have anyone new, you know, from a random country this time with, with the last podcast? I know we had Indy a few weeks ago. Yeah, um... No, I'm really, well, definitely there's actually negative listeners now in Russia. Oh. Um, you know, thanks to our Philoxera podcast. So Pretty much. I mean, it's we lost all our French ones when you said that the champagne method was made in, you know, Britain. So that just totally ruined that for us too. So we're, you know, we're, we're just trying to bug everyone all around the world, apparently. It's kind of what we do. But wine does. Right? What happens when you drink a bottle of wine? on a Friday afternoon. Mm.
we have good wine today. Not that we don't always have good wine because we typically do. Um, but we have really good wine today. Like really good wine today. This is, this is gonna be fun. We're in Alsace today. So basically I, I made this joke at the end of last time. I think Manny got tired of leading the discussion for the last you know few sessions that we've had and kind of wanted to sit back and enjoy a good bottle of wine. So he's gonna make me talk <laughs> by picking the one that I wanted to do. Uh, so we're, we're going back to France and we're in Alsace. And just because of you know what we have access to through the jobs we have, we both have the, uh, the same producer. We have domains in Umbrecht and uh, from, from Alsace, uh, two, two historic families that came together into one house. And now um, the, the head of the family, Olivier, is just doing crazy, awesome, beautiful things and is just brilliant. And we'll get into it. I mean, the wines are ridiculous. <laughs> There, there is a definite wow factor to the to the wines of the Uh One of my just quickly, one of my first experiences with these wines. Um, I love, still to this day, like I love a good value, <laughs> and I'm a bargain shopper. Um, and I I shop closeouts at liquor stores all the time, and I found a bottle of 19. 95 um, Gumerschweier that Olivia had made of a Riesling. And at this point, this was 2004, 2005 um, or 2006. And I drank this bottle. Uh, I shared it with my wife and it was, it was a light bulb, life changing moment. And Adam, last time, you talked about you know, what really opened your eyes to, to white wine in particular, going from your hedonism of Syrah, Pinot, Blend, which I made a comment last time that there's, I heard this genetic link and apparently Pinot Noir is a parent varietal to Syrah, which is kind of cool. Maybe that's why we see it in blends. It was a life-changing moment. And I know for myself, diving into the wines of Alsace in particular and and Alsatian Riesling, specifically um, Zinnobrecht, but you know, a hand handful of other great producers changed my life for wine 100%. I was saying this before in the, uh, the pre-show, can we call it that when we talked before when we were on Zoom, the pre-show, mm -hmm. um, where the, I, have a, I have a Riesling, that's what I'm drinking today. We'll get more into it in later, but just to kind of talk about how geeky and cool th th this producer is. When we think of Riesling, uh, you know, if you out there, I don't know what your experience is with Riesling who's listening, but the sweet ones, um, they have this like mouth coating factor, obviously there's sugar. Um, even if they're not sweet, they can be very viscous. There, there's this weight that comes with Riesling. I'm drinking one and I, it is, the, the weight, it's, it's, it's not there. There's, there's, it's not. It is, it's lean and, and, and linear. That Riesling mouthfeel just isn't there and it's hundred percent Riesling. And it just speaks to how this producer operates. He lets the fruit do the talking in any given year. It also, it's what makes Alsace so unique. It's, so, a, it's, like, a, it's like a lean, mean drinking machine. I, that, that, that's me right now. Cause this <laughs> thing is awesome. I think we should give some background so Manny, this is the portion of the, uh, the show where you can drink while, while I talk. I'm going to go into the history here. We'll put the professor I'm already drunk. <laughs> and Alsace is unique for, for lots of reasons. 90% of Alsatian wine is white. It's a really high number. And all the things that we're about to talk about, we'll, we'll go into that. So that's a good, I think, place to start. We're talking white wine for the most part. If we're talking red, it's a little bit of Pinot Noir. But that's, that's it. Uh, Alsace is the second most northerly wine region in, in France. It's not quite as north as Champagne. Uh, so super north. As far as topography goes, it sits in what's called the Rhine Graben. A Graben is basically a depression, a trench 
that formed along fault lines on either side. That's the really, you know, dumbed down version of what it is, but it creates a unique uh, geological kind of situation. Because of that, you have all these different soil types. The other piece to it too is bordering Alsace on the west is the Vosges Mountains. And this is really important because where they are in France, typically, uh, they would normally, it'd be cold and it would be wet. But the Vosges Mountains essentially block all the rain clouds from coming over uh, and, and hitting Alsace. And Alsace is one of the driest uh, wine regions in France as a result. So you have this amalgamation of soils uh, from this, you know, geological structure. You have this interesting climate. Again, we're northern, we get a lot of sunshine. Uh, it's technically a continental climate, you know, not semi, just purely continental. So warm days, cool nights, rain is protected. It's this really cool, unique area with, with inference. Man, did I miss anything, Manny, do you want to add? Um, I, I was hoping you would say Graben a little differently. <laughs> uh, with more of like a Graben, like a... No, I mean... Have it, you it, heard it, my it, accent? <laughs> I, I can do that. Have you heard my accent? Yeah, guy, it's a Graben. Grabbing, grabbing kid. Why? No? It's a grabbing kid. <laughs> um, no, absolutely. Like, it, it's such a unique... Uh, yeah, it's like one of the driest areas of France. And basically, if you think of, like, a souffle, how it was created, and it's super old. Like, it's... Uh, what? 300 million years ago, you know, you had these little mountains, and then it became kind of an inland sea... And then it rose up. Um, and you also see this in uh, Le Bras Valley, which is um, the valley that sits in between the Jura and Burgundy. This is the Sonnegraben, but it's the same thing. And you create this rain shadow from the Vosges Mountains, you know, going all the way down across the Rhine. And then you have the Black Forest, which keeps humidity out in, uh, in Germany. It's unique. We have, we have volcanic soils. We have granite. We have schist. We have sandstone. We have limestone. We have marl. We have just clay. We have loam. We have loess. We have sand. I mean, we got everything kind of in a hodgepodge. It's, it's really, really unique and, and really special. So you combine that interesting geology, topography, all that stuff with the history of the region as well. And again, the, the story just it gets more and, and more unique. We have at least record of the vine going back to 2 AD uh, when we, you know, we, we had Romans floating around and the monks of St. Hilaire. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Um, I'm looking at different notes when I say that. That's champagne. Ignore that. And Lemieux and all that stuff. Um, Someone's so, been drinking. Yeah, not enough. Not enough. Um, but we still, the, the 2 AD part was correct. We still go back to 2 AD with the Romans. Um, and that lasted until about the, the, the fifth century when the Germans came in. The Germans are very important. Uh, if you studied your world history, I'm sure you know about Alsace and Lorraine uh, with World War II, the fight between Germany and France. That wasn't new. Alsace had been going back and forth a long time. Uh, they hit their peak in the Renaissance. They are just making awesome wine. People are loving it. And then the Thirty Years' War happens. Kind of just puts a stop to everything. And it's around this point, France is prospering, and Louis XIV takes Alsace from, from Germany. You know, this goes on, and they're, they're still making wine. It's still good. And France is prospering, so good things are happening. But it's not as kind of popular as it was during, you know, a couple hundred years before that. Well, then the French Revolution happens. And Germany eventually says, you know what, we're going to take back Alsace. That's a very truncated version of the, uh, of the 19th century. Just so you know, I, went, I skipped over a lot, but that's pretty much what happens. Uh, in 1871, Germany retakes Alsace. They hold Alsace until the end of World War I, when France takes back Alsace with the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, and then um, World War II happens, and... Germany goes in and kind of takes back and there's, there's all this kind of devastation back and forth. There is this, there's this pull between France and Germany 
Is the region French? Is it German? Is it French? Is it German? That's a real thing and you see it in the wines and we'll get there. Uh, I wanna do that part first. Let's go back to the 19th century. And can I just interject yeah. real quick, not, yes. to, not to steal your, your momentum, but I used to work with this girl named Elsie. She was this tall, blonde, like really beautiful uh, woman from Alsace. And uh, we waited tables together and I, was, I made a comment like, oh, you're from Alsace, so you're kind of like, you're almost Germanic. And she just had to really restrain herself from slapping me as hard as she could. It's real. It's real. Well, that, real. That, was, that was pretty close to the end of me. So I didn't realize that there was such a, such a tension, you know, in, in much way that sometimes German Riesling can have a lot of tension or Alsatian Riesling can have a lot of tension to it. It's, it's also part of our pre-show. <laughs> we'll talk about right, that. You're just trying to get me worked up. Um, I'm going to go back to drinking. So we were talking about tension as a term used to describe wine. We'll get there when we get to the end. It's, it's an interesting kind of concept. Um, but I skipped over a big component of the wine. So we, we have this back and forth between um, are, we, are we French, are we German, are we French, are we German, and so on. Well, uh, phylloxera hit Alsace in the late 19th century, like it did the rest of France, and it hit them hard. And one of the things that Alsace did right away to combat, instead of grafting, was they planted a lot of hybrids. So things that, you know, not that is vinifera. So, um, and they weren't grafting vinifera onto uh, Labrusca uh, rootstock, which is what we talked about before when we talked about phylloxera. Labrusca is the conquered grape essentially here that uh, where the rootstock was um, resistant to phylloxera. They were just planting hybrids, which is basically a blend of, of, um, of vinifera and um, I'm blanking and Labrusca. Uh, but these didn't make really good wines in Alsace. But they survived. They had they replanted Alsace to all these hybrids in the late 19th century. And then they were ordered after World War I to, to replant and to um, you know, pull out, pull out the, the hybrid vines and plant vinifera, plant indigenous varietals. But you know, the French government wasn't exactly in a place to be enforcing anything at that time. And then World War II happened. So there wasn't a lot of pressure to, to do so. Um, Germany came in and told them just, you know, harvest as much as you possibly can. The war ends. Uh, all these hybrid vines are still left. France has Alsace back after World War II, and they begin to uh, say, okay, you know what, Alsace, we didn't really put the pressure on you earlier we're not going to allow you to have AOC status if you don't replant. You're not going to have the same sense of place identity as Burgundy gets, as Chateau de Pop gets, as Bordeaux gets, unless you pull all these hybrids out and plant things that, that matter. So we had World War I, we had the worldwide Great Depression that happened afterwards, you have World War II, and you have all these poor farmers that are told, you know what, you have no money and your land's been ransacked and you've gone back and forth, like you had all this nonsense happen in the past 25 years, you have to yank up all your crops and replant, which is a big deal because it takes, it takes a few years to get fruit that produces a good quality wine. You might get some fruit after, you know, two or three, but it's not gonna make the best wine. But they backed them into a corner, they had to do this. So that's kind of where we got um, modern, the, the modern framework of, of Alsace for all intents and purposes, is this post-World War II uh, forcible replanting to indigenous ind indigenous varietals, except the Riesling, which is not indigenous to Alsace, it's indigenous to Germany. Again, the France, you know, are we French, are we German, what, what are we? Um, and Riesling is the most widely planted grape in Alsace, I believe outside, uh, maybe in southern France, and many you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's the only area in France where the most widely planted grape well, that's not because the because Grenache and the Rhone that wouldn't be accurate. The most widely planted white grape, maybe that's it, um, in the region is not indigenous to France. Yeah, no, absolutely, and it's. I think in the Languedoc, it's the only 
AOC, only region that has an AOC, and I, I honestly can't remember at the top of my head if it's, if it's a specific AOC or, or Kotalangwadok that allows Riesling in the AOC other than, other than Alsace. Yeah. Yeah, but I love the fact that, you know, and it, it, this all ties into the very beginning when we started talking about, you know, benchmarks and the AOC system. And it, it can be very, it can seem really constrictive. But at the end of the day, they're not saying you can't grow Cabernet Sauvignon or Chardonnay here because actually grow Chardonnay in um, Alsace. And there's a great one that Zinnenberg makes, but it's not Alsace AOC. You can grow whatever you want in all these different regions throughout France, but you need to follow the laws to be considered, uh, to, to classify as that regional line. And I had a conversation with somebody years ago saying, that doesn't seem fair. It seems like it staples creativity. It's like, no, it maintains integrity. Because you can, you can plant Cabernet and in some of the Grand Cru vineyards that are 51 in um, Alsace, a Grand Cru today. You can tell the skies are angry because it's getting really windy where I'm at. But uh, you can grow Cabernet there, I guess, technically. The vineyard would lose its status. But even if it didn't, that vineyard would never, it could never be called Alsatian Cabernet. It could never be called Alsatian Grand Cru. Uh, Rangatan Cabernet Sauvignon, like you know, it's just at that point, Ben La France, French wine. You can make it right, but you can't classify it as this cultural identity, and that's ultimately what AOCs are. It's 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 a cultural identity within a small subregion or village or a neighborhood, if you will, of of France. And maybe it's stifling, but I thank God for it because we have great wine because of it. Yeah. You know, and you're you're spot on. I think with with the the culture portion. I mean, the, the idea, the whole point of the AOC, and this is we we can tie this into Alsace really nicely. It's not just that you're drinking a varietal per se; you are drinking the place um, that you, you are drinking something that is is characteristic and unique to that place in the world. Um, Alsace isn't trying to make German Riesling. That doesn't mean German Riesling's bad. It just means it's not Alsace. They want to be different. They, they, they want to have their own unique identity. And that's what those, that's what those rules are kind of, of, of structured for. Um, and this is where, again, where, where Alsace, we, we go back to the, this kind of French-German uh, amalgamation. So when we before a lot of the French stuff we've done, Chapin at the Pop, red and white Burgundy, uh, you know, even even the Provence Rosés, um, these are labeled by place. And the AOC in Alsace, which was granted in 1962, um, the Alsace AOC, um, you are allowed to label by varietal in Alsace. Uh, on all these, on basically all their, their, you know, their Alsace AOC wines. They're not, they're still, they're still wines. Um, you have to be a hundred percent, except for a random exception, which we will talk about in a minute. Um, you know, if you're going to put Riesling, you have to be hundred percent Riesling. If you you can be Pinot Gris, but it's got to say hundred percent Pinot Gris. Varietal labeling is part of the German heritage, um, showing itself in, in Alsace, along with the, along with Riesling. It's just another um, area. The two, um, I forget how to explain them. Uh, Janty and, and Edelsvicker are the two uh, blend designations uh, that you can put on there where they're allowed to be a, um, a hodgepodge. Yeah, and like uh, Janty is, is, uh, has to be um, majority noble varietals. Um, I mean, what makes a varietal noble? It's typically the varietal that has shown the most um tension the most <laughs> integrity there's that that uh that word again once again the gods are angry because of the wind but uh they're the varietals that show the most integrity of the region recent goes one of the is one of the grapes gewurztraminer gewurztraminer is unique because uh there's a varietal in the jura called sauvignon sauvignon blanc not because 
Sauvignon Blanc. And there's a mutation of that that grew in uh, Alsace in Germany that is aromatic. And that's what Gewürztraminer is, but they're genetically identical. Um, Muscat and then uh, Pinot Grigio. I'm just kidding. It's actually, it is in last week or last uh, podcast where I talked about how I had these guys at my restaurant and, and they were saying that they were they're drinking the, a basic insipid Pinot Grigio from, from Italy. It was fine, but it was meant to be a simple wine. Oh, Italians can make wines. Well, Pinot Grigio is not Italian. It is, um, Pinot is a family like Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, Pinot Blanc, uh, Pinot Meunier. And uh, Grigio is the coloration. And Grigio or Gris is gray in French. And that's just to quickly pop in. I'm drinking Pinot Gris today. Um, so it's one of the noble varietals. There's seven main varietals, but those are really, I would say, probably four of the most important. And then going back to phylloxera, we talked about what was, how, how do we quantify early ripening, late ripening? There's chasselas in, in, um, in this area as well. But yeah, the gentile has to be a majority of these noble varietals. And they're great wines. They're like really cool white wines. You can have a lot of fun in, in just talk about like AOC. You can, you can still have a lot of fun and creativity in Alsace, with, even within the AOC. Um, the other uh, kind of primary grapes that are not uh, noble are Pinot Blanc, uh, Sylvanier, and Pinot Noir. And if we're being technical, uh, uh, Muscat, Autonel as well. Um, the, they just, you know, there's a bazillion, and that's my technical term for it, strains of Muscat throughout the world. Uh, Muscat Apetit Grand Blanc is the, is the technically the noble one. That's the one that's kind of most sought after in general. I want to quickly go to Pinot Blanc though quickly, because this is the, this is where France can get really stupid. <laughs> and I say that with love, but it's, it's really stupid. This, this, this is where this, France gets stupid? Yes, this is Here? where... Like, this right now, Pinot Blanc, because, okay. If you see a bottle of wine labeled Pinot Blanc from Alsace, I just told you before it has to be 100% of what it says it is, right? Well, not with Pinot Blanc, because there could be, uh, there's a secondary grape in Alsace called Oxawa, which is genetically, I don't know if it's exact, but it's very similar to Pinot Blanc at the very least. So um, if you buy a bottle of Pinot Blanc, it can be 100% Pinot Blanc. It can be Pinot Blanc and Auxerrois. Um, it can be a majority Auxerrois and a minority Pinot Blanc, or it can be 100% Auxerrois. But it can still say Pinot Blanc on the bottle, and it's all legally okay. And this does not even touch going into Pinot d'Alsace, where you can incorporate Pinot Gris and Pinot Noir. Like it, 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 what are you doing? Um, yeah, it just... I. So that's kind of varietal labeling in, in Alsace. Um, all, those, they, all those varietals, those two blend, the, the Janty and um, the Edelsvicker, fall under the Alsace AOC, which is pretty much the, the still wine designation. Uh, unlike other places, uh, I, you know, I talked about, especially Burgundy, I talked about how we have, you know, all those soil types. You would think there'd be all these funky different, you know, levels of the AOC that there aren't really. Alsace AOC, if you want to um, use a commune, you, you can attach communes to, to the Alsace AOC, but it's not a distinct AOC. Um, if you have a certain parcel of land that you think is unique, uh, we call it a Ludi. If you would like to reference a Ludi on your label, you're absolutely allowed to do that and say, hey, look, my wine comes from this very specific spot that does not have Grand Cru status, but we think is unique and, and so on. It's still Alsace AOC. So that Alsace AOC is really, um, it's not all encompassing, but it's a large swath of, of, of what's grown. Um, Cremant Alsace is the sparkling um, AOC. Um, and this is where you see more of the many reference Chardonnay earlier. This is where you see, you do see it in some still wines, but you'll see Chardonnay in the, in the Cremant 
uh, a little more often. You see a lot of Pinot Blanc in the Cremants as well. Um, it is, uh, you know, we're nine months on lease. We're very much like the other Cremants throughout throughout France. Uh, friendly reminder, Cremant is Champagne Method sparkling wine outside of the Champagne region. In you know, in, in I, I would call that I would call that British method since they came up with the sparkling. Oh. You know, we were we, we won a couple of weeks. We were so close to being allowed back in France. Maybe I am. You're not. <laughs> They're not going to let you back in, Manny. I know. At least I drink well when I drink French. So right? that's, the, that's the key. Uh, now that we've I've lost my train of thought because we just completely, you know. AOCs. The AOC doesn't mean. AOCs. Oh, um, for a Cremant, the only kind of cool note, if you're making a uh, rosé Cremant, you have to be 100% Pinot Noir. Which you, you can't just, you know, you're not just dropping some, um, you know, red wine into your Cremant to make it pink and calling it, you know, rosé. You, you actually, by law, have to be 100% Pinot Noir. So I think that's kind of cool. Um, so you have those two. And then you have the Grand Cruz. So um, in the last 15 years, the Grand Cruz, even though they were um, established in the 1970s, they are now each their own AOC. So Alsace actually has 53 AOCs, 51 of those being Grand Cru. Um, so the Grand Cru are most of the time monovarietal wines. Um, so we're only using one, you know, one item, but there are two exceptions to that rule. Uh, Caprikoff is one of those. The majority has to be Gewurztraminer, but then there is a, there is a blend. Um, I cannot pronounce the other one. It's like Altenburg, uh, De Bergheim. I, it's, I don't know. It's, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, if you thought I said Graben wrong, I just put <laughs> that. So, but those, which is going to be a majority Riesling, but those are the two kind of exceptions. And those have to be one of the five nobles, except again, another exception, unless we're talking Zotzenberg, where you're allowed to use Sylvanier, because again, What's France without having an exception? <laughs> you know, it's, I, I was explained to someone, you know, uh, I forget, in the last six months, that I think France is the easiest, you know, country to learn for wine. And I was talking about Burgundy and they go, oh, but this, but the exception. And then I was, you know, talking about uh, the Rhone and uh, the exception. I was talking about, like, like like it's not that easy when there's an exception to everything <laughs> that counterbalances the rule. Not not to uh, ban me even more in France, but France with wine law sounds a lot like English with grammar. There's a lot of exceptions, and sometimes things don't make sense. And why is it read and read when it's spelled the same? <laughs> Uh, Why is it though thought and throughout? It's fair. You know, but I'm drinking. This um, is so true. You're drinking I what? happen to be drinking a Grand Cru, and I want to talk about it for a couple seconds. Yeah. Because um, you probably need to drink some water because, you know, I haven't said anything of any merit so far today. So I am drinking... One of my favorite wines, one of my favorite Grand Cru's, one of my favorite vineyards in the world. So this is a main Zinumbrecht. This is a Close Saint-Aubain, which is a very small parcel within a Grand Cru called, I call it the Rangatang, but it's actually called Rangatan. Um, it is the southernmost vineyard in Alsace. Super steeply terrace. And it is um, uh has a ton of volcanic soil. So Adam was talking about all of that volcanic soils within Alsace, or all the, the different soils, 13 soils in Alsace. I've been drinking uh, with all the different soils in Alsace. And uh, this one is mostly volcanic. Um, and that really changes, a lot. I think, a lot of the, the minerality and complexity within the wine. But it is so expressive. And what Olivia does, which is really cool because you know, first of all, when we talk about Alsatian wines, it, it is very easy to start talking about German wines. Um, even though my friend almost punched me 
for saying that she's basically a German. Um, you know, it, there is this connection. Bottle shape, you know, is, is a big one. The German bottles look like um, Alsatian bottles. The varietal on the label is something they do in Germany. It's something they do in Alsace. They don't do the rest of France. The, the fact that we're using mostly aromatic varietals between the noble varietals, which are Riesling, Gewürztraminer, Pinot Gris, and Muscat, and even Pinot Blanc is aromatic here. That has to do with the climate. It is, you know, it's a dry climate. It's great continental, so you get warm days, but you get cold nights, and you have a long growing period, um, and that allows the vine to spend, or the grapes spend more time on the vine, more hang time, and it creates a real floral aromatic style of wine. Um, but beyond that, there is also, you know, the, the minerality and the acidity. And even, I love German Riesling and German Riesling, even if it's sweet, even if it's a, a spate lace, late harvest style or an house lace, selected uh, berry style or selected bunch of style um, that can be sweet, it's all about minerality and acidity, that your mouth should water when you have these wines. And the way I liken those wines, like German Rieslings or even, so the wine I'm drinking, which is Pinot Gris, is a sweeter style, um, Pinot Gris. And how do you know? Well, Olivia, Olivia is kind enough to put on the side of the bottle, I think it's on the, on the right side, it's something called Indies, which is usually right below the alcohol content. Indies 1 is dry. Indies 5 is sweet. This is Indies 4. So we're, we're a pretty sweet wine at this point. And it has to do with the ripeness, the sugar levels. But even with that sweetness, there is so much acidity and freshness in the wine. At This is a 2012 vintage at nine years old. Um, and it's like biting into a ripe peach in the summer. On a hot day, you bite into the peach, your mouth waters with the acidity, there's ripe sweetness, but then you get a little bit of that tart from the, uh, from the pit, you know, and when we look at some of these wines that are more aromatic, like, you know, Riesling, Riesling can develop, obviously, a lot of sugar, have a lot of weight to it. You know, green in this area, because it's so dry, you get this richness, this kind of dried fruit, also sometimes, as the wine ages. Um, there's so much nuance, balance, and complexity. The wines are just, I, it just, they make me happy. They make a lot of people happy. So mm -hmm. you're, I'm curious, man, do you, you have Grand Cru, but it's yep. the theater style. Does it have either Vendage Tardive or Selection de Grand Noble on it? At, it on, does on not, no. So No, it's, um, it's, it's not quite the, and I know you're going to jump into that now, but it's not quite the, the, the intense sugar to leave, uh, sugar level or the residual sugar that you would have with those wines. Um, but it's definitely a, a sweeter, riper style. But once again, the acid is so prevalent and the minerality that right in the back of my palate, you can feel all this chalk and, and the soils. It's, it's pretty incredible. So, um, Really quick, Vendash Tadiv and Selection de Grand Noble are the two designations for uh, late harvest wines in, in Alsace. Um, Vendash Tadiv literally translates as late harvest, I believe. And, uh, you know, they're just, they're allowed to hang on the vine later and concentrate more sugar, develop more before they're picked. Um, some of them can go through noble rot. That's okay. It's not a requirement to, to have botrytis in, infect the grapes. When you do Selection de Grand Noble, it's late August, and those grapes must be botrytis infective. Um, these are really, you know, sweet, um, you know, sticky dessert wines. They have a lot of acid too, don't get me wrong, but they are, um, you know, we're, we're talking dessert wine when we get to that Selection de Grand Nobles. And can you talk for just a second about what Noble Rot is? Yeah, so uh, noble rot is a, it's a good thing. It has the word rot, but which is why we probably say botrytis more often than we say noble rot. Um, but it is this, uh, essentially, it is a, a situation uh, that occurs climatically. 
um, and the the grapes, um, you know, get this. Uh, they desiccate slightly, for lack of a better term, and the the sugars really concentrate, and you get this. Um, what it the botrytis itself lends to, um, aside from the that concentration you get, it also gives this really kind of cool honey factor that you see a honey note tone flavor across. Um, actually, I, I I find it in all botrytis infected wines throughout France that I've had at least, it, it might not be the most prevalent flavor you get, but it is, uh, um, it's there. It's this, it's this unique um, situation that creates this really, you know, concentrated, sweet, um, vibrant wine. I love those. Um, so I just want to talk for a moment too, just about the, the winemaking style of Bolivia in a moment, Adam, you'll talk about, you'll talk about the, um, the, the Riesling, but you know, oftentimes when we look at, we think about uh, Alsatian wines, German wines, we don't really talk about oak very often. Um, we think about seeing the steel, there's a lot of minerality, some people want to preserve that freshness, but Olivia ages all his wines in oak. Now this wine has been aged in oak that's like 50 years old. So it is not adding any oak it doesn't smell like coke. It doesn't be buttery. Um, the wines don't go through malolactic fermentation because it's, well, first of all, it's way too cold. Um, his fermentations take a long time. They are not quote unquote natural wines, but he doesn't really intervene in, in the winemaking. When the fermentation is done, the fermentation is done. So we have these big, giant, large oak vats. Every oak vat looks different. Every oak vat is super old. They don't impart any oak aromas. It's really allowing the oxygen to, to integrate with the wine and to give the wine more complexity um, to really help the wine develop in the, in the barrel through fermentation and then extend a time in the bottle. But the wine has just such beautiful fruit aromas to it. You know, it's really floral. Once again, it's minerally. There's the oak I pick up right up on the finish. And it's almost like having toast, like a brioche, toasted brioche with butter and apricot jam and a little bit of like truffle salt. Mm. And it's so good. This actually, if you want to know really good uh, little kind of midday lunch, having a glass of wine, take some brioche. Toast it, add on some butter, uh, a really good quality butter, um, not margarine. Add in uh, some apricot jam or orange marmalade. Fry an egg, put it on top, add tarragon and a little bit of like a truffle salt on top of it. And just when you cut into the egg yolk, all the egg yolk goes everywhere and you mix it in with butter and and the jam, it's it's really good. You know, that's not fair because I can't eat that now because I don't have any of those things at home. So oh, I'm in the woods. <laughs> I can't eat that either. I can lick a rock. I'll get the minerality from the from the wine. So true. Um, like not just because you said that. If you're out there like, you know, what what do they mean by minerality? That is one of the ways you can kind of pick up on what we're saying. Um, like there are people who go out there and, and, and lick rocks. Uh, it's it just like when we talk, you know, when somebody talks about a, a wine tasting like graphite, because they, they probably shoot their pencil often when they were young and they have a distinct memory of what, you know, pencil lead tastes like. And it's, um, they're, we're not making this stuff up. Like these are actual flavor compounds. If you don't get them, it's okay. Not everyone is Manny and just walks around nature loving rocks and, you know, looking them in public. So it's... It. <laughs> For those of you listening, I'm actually licking a rock right now. So Adam and I were in Argentina uh, six years ago, six and a half years ago, and we're in this winery. And they had this giant stone in the middle, and there was this, this woman who was just a winemaker, and she was saying, 
you know, if you lick the stones, you can taste the minerality in the wines. And so I went up and I licked the stone because what else would you do? I mean, she scared me pretty much. But when we actually sat down and we started tasting the wines, I could taste that minerality in the wine. You know, so yeah, don't be afraid to lick rocks. You know, it's, and you haven't stopped licking rocks since. It's pretty much, you know, it's, we accept them for it. It's okay. You know, he accepts my accent. I accept that he looks rocks. It's, you know, it, it, it's a. I like rocks. Um, can you can you tell us about what you're drinking? Because I I really I'm really happy with my wine. I'm really bummed that we're not sharing the wines together. I know. Uh, because I also really I have another bottle I'll share with you soon. But um, I really love. I haven't had that vintage, but I love that wine. Yeah. So uh, I have uh, DZH's uh, Riesling Roche Grantique 2018. And this actually also comes from a Grand Cru vineyard in, in Alsace called Brand. It's declassified though. The Grand Teak, this is coming from uh, the granite soils on that, uh, on that, in that Grand Cru vineyard. Um, it's Riesling. And I said before, what, it's still like, it's still blowing my mind even as it warms up. I don't get that viscosity that I'm just so used to looking for when it comes to Riesling. Um, this is bright, it's crisp, it's, it's linear. Um, that, that minerality is just like, it's, it's everywhere. Uh, you still get some of those distinct flavor notes that you get from, you know, those stone fruits that you get from, uh, from Riesling. It's, it tastes, it, it's Riesling without that viscosity, which is, again, we're, we're, that, that's terroir, that's the vineyard. Uh, that is the, that, that's Olivier Ambrecht, you know, that's how he makes the wine. Um, you know, Manny mentioned that he lets it, you know, it's, it's minimalist winemaking. Uh, the wine I have, he let ferment for a year. So whenever you're, you know, if you're in the industry or if you're not, and you're looking at, you know, fermentations take, you know, anywhere between 10 and maybe 25 days, you know, even if they're controlled, you hear about these controlled fermentations where they're controlling the temperature because they want to uh, elicit certain aromas from the grapes and so on. Even those controlled fermentations don't, you know, maybe a month. Uh, this took a year because he's so minimalist. He goes down, it's fermenting. Oh, it's not ready yet. Walks away. No, no, it's not ready yet. He walks away. These cellars in Alsace are so cool. It's this natural, cool fermentation that takes a long time. And on, and the wine is done when the wine is done. Uh, in Olivier's mind, he's not fermenting to something. He doesn't have a thought in mind beforehand that he's making a wine for. Right, so he's not like, you know, I'm gonna make, um, you know, the, the this wine, you know, I want it to have, mm, I, you know, I'm gonna make it sweet this year, you know, cause the grapes, you know, they, nope. He ferments it until the wine has decided it's good, where it's supposed to be. And that's when he stops. And that's just, that's really geeky and that's really cool. Um, he'll actually, if the wine is not done yet, and this hasn't happened in, uh, in the last four or five years, I think, Correct me if I'm wrong, Manny, but what, what he'll do is if he's making, you know, 20, I have a 2018. If he's making the 2018 Riesling and it's in barrel and, you know, it's been a year and he's like, yeah, yeah, this, this just isn't done yet. And he has the 19 and he thinks the 19 is ready before the 18. He'll release the 19 before the 18 and keep the 18 in barrel because it's not ready yet. Like the, it's, he's, he's letting the wine decide, for lack of a better term, when it's reached the point of, uh, of what it's supposed to be, what it's meant to be. And that's just, what it must be nice because he, he, he has the income where he can do that, right? He has the ability to do that. But also it's just, it's, that's real, that's the real romance of wine. Like it's what he's doing, you know, the, the, it's not just a story being made up. It's what he actually does. It's what makes the winery so special, what he does so special. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I know that there's some years when we get our allocations of of, of um, and there's no Riesling. We got everything else, but no Riesling. It was like, well, we want the Riesling. Well, he's not. It's it'll come out next year. 
you know, or maybe two years from now, you know, we'll, we'll get the reselling. Or he just won't sell it. You know, he just like, hey, you know what? It just wasn't where, it wasn't developing the way we wanted it to develop. So we're not going to, we're not going to sell it. And, you know, wine is a business. Um, and it's a, it, to have that foresight when you're really, we talk about brands all the time, like champagne as a brand. Um, you know, the, the Coterone as a brand, the concept of Chateau de Pop as a brand, you want to protect the identity. And the whole idea of the AOC system is to protect the brand of that village, of that region. This is who we are in Alsace. This is what we do. And I don't think anybody, and I, and I would say this is the one time I, I make a statement like this, and everyone from that region would agree with me 100%. I don't think anybody does that better than, than Olivier and Sinubra. I mean, it's just, um, he's such an ambassador for this region and these wines. Um, and the brand vineyard, I mean, that's a Grand Cru vineyard, right? That is what you're drinking is we're not talking about a wine that's 150 bucks a bottle you know it's probably like you know 35 40 dollars a bottle it's an expensive bottle of white wine brand it's not an everyday thing but it is an experience and there's such you know nuance complexity tension going back to that word again um within those wines i haven't had the 18 but i had the 16 and i've had the 17 and they are without a doubt for me other than that, to that 1995 Gruberschweier I had, you know, 15 years ago, um, the best Rieslings I've ever had. And, and to me, it, it kind of begs the question of, you know, when we talk about Riesling, and, you know, for Alsace, Riesling is such an important variety. We have the other three grapes. I'm drinking Pinot Gris. And I think um, my favorite wines from Olivia are his Pinot Gris. Um, personally, because it's so expressive, it definitely ain't Pinot Grigio <laughs> at all. I mean, it's just, you see what the bulk consumption can do with this varietal and what, what the, um, the artist can do. And it's, it's paint by numbers versus Picasso, you know, and, um, and this is Picasso. But, you know, when we talk about, you know, Riesling, Riesling is such a unique varietal because it's the varietal that when you start getting into wine, maybe you'll like because it's you find that it's sweet or you drink sweet Rieslings. In the United States, we get a Riesling. It's typically a sweeter style. Um, and then you really start getting into wine. You start like drier wines. You start tasting things like Chablis. You're like, oh, this is really great. Unoaked, minerally Chardonnay. I like wines like this. And you start drinking wines from the Loire. Then you have Alvarino and all these different things. And you think of Riesling as being this very simple, sweet, training wheels kind of wine. But that's not the case because the most expensive wines in the world are not Grand Cru Burgundy. They are these small little half bottles of oftentimes German Riesling that might be hundreds of dollars a bottle for, for a half bottle. The winery loses money to make them. You know, because it's such care and um, integrity in what goes in that wine. So a fun geeky science fact. First of all, brand, I think, means fire uh, because it's the warmest vineyard. Even though Rangatan is the most southern, brand is, I think, the warmest vineyard in Alsace or the warmest brown fruit. But um, if you were to grow Chardonnay and... Riesling right next to each other, and you harvest them both at the same uh, level of bricks or same sugar levels. And you decided you were going to vinify both wines, you're going to make both wines at 12, 13% alcohol. The Chardonnay is going to be much sweeter than the Riesling because Chardonnay develops more sugar. The reason why we think of Riesling as being a sweet wine is because it's made to be sweet. If you pick up that bottle of wine and it says, so my wine says 14.5%, 2002, and it's a sweet wine, which means that these grapes were uber ripe, to use a German word, super ripe um, to get that high of alcohol, but that much natural sweetness in the wine. Um, when you look at a bottle of wine from, from Germany, 
a Cabernet, a sweet lace wine that's sweeter, it'll probably say 9%, 8 9.5% alcohol, which means that there's still sugar that was not fermented. And that's why we think of Riesling as being sweet. And that style of Riesling only became popular in Germany, I think, after the First World War. Before that, almost all the wines were vinified to be drier, higher alcohol wine. You know, so your wine, so I've mentioned earlier about the Indies level that Olivia does to let you know what is dry, what is sweet. Mine is level four, Indies four. And once again, it's super fine print. Like you, you got to kind of look and find it. Um, and when I first got this bottle, I didn't know that it was going to be so sweet. And so I wasn't sure if I liked it at first. And then I had a second bottle with a friend of mine. And I was like, this is amazing. You know, so you, you got to have that right mindset. But I think yours is, you said it was the driest one you've ever had. Yeah, it, it's, it's Indies 1. I, I can't, I, and like, I, I, it was so dry on the palate. I went and looked up. I, I went and found the tech sheet online because I'm a geek. And I wanted to see. And it does have some sugar in it. The acid to the roof, too. So um, acidity and sugar levels, for those of you listening at home, um, balance each other out. It's one of the, when we talk about balance, one of the things we're talking about is acid to, to sugar, if there is some. Um, and maybe it's the, the, the acidity, you know, I mean, it's got to be. But th this thing feels like it's 0, 0.0. I, I get, I perceive nothing. Uh, it's it's crazy how how dry this thing is is coming on the palate. It's I mean it's it's absolutely stunning. Uh, it's and you know I had this. I was coming from about an hour away before you know I hopped on and decided to talk with Manny. I had this thing in ice just to make sure that it got cold, so I wasn't having it you know at a warmer temperature for sitting in my car. And so when I got home, it was really cold. It, it's warmed up, so the um, the uh, perceived acidity kind of lessens as the as the wine gets warm, and I'm not I'm still getting no no sugar. It's it's crazy. I mean, my wine, and this is the thing about temperature too. When we talk about wines, especially wines that are aromatic, if we're talking about entry level like Chablis, which are still great wines, but I mean like kind of more of a straightforward, unoaked, shard, super minerally. You know, and it's it's a warm day. Chill that, chill that guy down. But this is at this point. I had it in the freezer in the morning because I knew we had talked um, yesterday, and I was just recapping that. Listening back to the last podcast, the ice bucket was louder than we were, um, and so you know we should maybe keep our um, get it cold, but 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 let it warm up a little bit so we don't have to you know hear the ice bucket, but. It becomes so expressive, and they recommend for these wines not to drink them too cold. You know, um, get them cold, get them chilled, let them open up, and let it open from the glass because you'll see that start to finish. It's really enjoyable, but I'm sure probably when you we serve that wine, and maybe several hours ago, freezer, it was like lemon custard, and now it's like dried apricot and jam and truffle and all these different things it starts to open up and um it starts to develop and all of a sudden you start getting the minerality and you really get the complexity of the wine you know, once you start to and i think no great more no great more than riesling i think riesling is the greatest grape. and all my friends who are just getting into wine um or like to drink wine but have never experienced Great Riesling. Always think it's just a cheap wine. It's wine. But wine people will tell you their favorite wines in the world are Riesling and oftentimes sweet German Rieslings um, or Alsatian Rieslings and then Burgundy. That is, if I could only drink those wines and this Pinot Gris from, from Olivier, then then I, I could die a happy man, you know. If if your only I say if your only experience with Riesling is that sweet stuff that got you started, or you know the 
the cloying dessert stuff from, you know, that's my, my dog's only experience is, is that she's very upset. What's the matter, puppy? I know. Did you want some Riesling? Clearly, she did. Um, but so it, it's fine and, you know, find an Alsatian Riesling. They're going to be dry. Um, the they they just are they're they're, they're going to be on the drier side. That's just how they make them. See, she she agrees now. She's though she's upset that I'm not sharing. Uh, but just try one. It's going to be it's it, it'll go in with without expectations. Just know that it's going to be dry and different from that sweet stuff you've had before. And that's not even me knocking the, the sweet Rieslings because the good ones that have the acid to balance the, the sugar are absolutely gorgeous as well. But just don't take that jug Riesling as the, as the be all end all because we don't do that for anything else. So why should we do it for Riesling? Well, absolutely. I mean, it's, I mean, it's a, there's a reason why it's a noble varietal and um, it is a cool climate varietal. So, you know, Alsace is, yes, yeah, the driest area of, um, of France. Um, you know, it is continental, so you do get warm days, but but the, the mean temperatures are relatively low. And it, it gets, uh, you know, the wines become really acidic and bright, but that dry climate really brings out this beautiful expressive style. And I was saying earlier, like the, um, the, the, the hang time on the vine is relatively long for Alsace, so you get a more aromatic style. But if you're growing this, and this is no disrespect to California, if you're growing this in Sonoma, or you're growing it in Napa, or you're growing it in Paso Robles, which are really warm climates, where you should be doing Grenache, Syrah, maybe some Tempranillos, uh, maybe some, some you know, Sangiovese, or, or, or near to Avila, probably better. Um, those are, those are varietals that are meant for those warm climates. If you're taking a cool climate varietal like Riesling and you're growing it in a place like Paso Robles, which can make great wines, it's an injustice to both the brand of Paso Robles and of Riesling because you're going to get a wine that's super sweet. It's not going to have any acid at all. It's going to feel fat and flabby. And if you're a first-time drinker, maybe it's enjoyable because it's sweet, it's not bitter. But it's ultimately not that enjoyable because it doesn't feel refreshing. So, I mean, outside of drinking more of my bottle, I have nothing else to add on Alsace right now without getting like too geeky. So I guess the question <laughs> is where we're going next and you let me pick this one. So I think it's only fair that, you know, we go so, back, back to you. I've been thinking, I've been giving this a lot of thought. And I think maybe we do all this again next week. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> you know, that would also be awesome. Uh, we can talk about Gilbert Schuminer and, and Muscat. Um, so I know there is a big, for a myriad of reasons, in this part of the world between Germany, Alsace, France, um, even down to Italy, down to Spain, Europe, which, which is what we've been kind of coveting. And, you know, we talk a lot about European wines because they are, benchmarks. We started talking about benchmarks. Italy has its benchmarks. Spain has its benchmarks. France has its benchmarks. The United States were developing them because they've been making wine here for thousands of years. So there's some great producers out of California. There's some great producers from Chile, from, from Argentina, um, from Washington, from Oregon, you know, but it's kind of like I'm going to go on a, a slight little tangent. It's kind of like sake a little bit. So like there are some domestic produced brewers of sake and they're doing some cool things, but they haven't quite figured out the, the, the cultural connection. Because when you're brewing in Japan, and I'm, I only think of this because I was doing a staff training at a restaurant the other day and we we're talking about domestic sake versus Japanese sake. When you're doing, when you are in Japan, you are bringing your sakis to friends of yours, yours who are also brewers and you're tasting what they're making and you're, and it's kind of friendly competition. And so you're like, I really like what they did. So I want to make mine better. And that only really happens when you are present with each other. Um, Lomberto Frescobaldi, uh, 
one of the famous families in Italy, and you had the um, Amalia Rosé, you know, a handful of weeks ago when we were in Tuscany. I did. You know, he gets together. He's a freaking duke or something like that. Like, he gets together with his friends, and they taste their high-end wines together, and they do a blind tasting, and they all judge who had the best wine. And the whole point is to have the better wine. And it doesn't mean that you don't like your friend's wines, you don't like that person's wine, but it's that you want your wines to be better. And what we're seeing now in California, we're seeing now in Chile and Argentina, that there's enough connection and enough cohesiveness with winemakers that culturally they are talking and they're tasting each other's wines and they're stepping up there, they're forcing each other to be more creative. You know, you can't just sit in the cave and drink your wine and this is I'm making this because this is what I love to do I'm sure like even Olivia would say this is how the wine is but he also realizes that there are other great producers in Alsace that he needs to be relevant with and you use them to kind of pull you to elevate so because of that I want to go to Argentina That was a really long-winded way of getting to Argentina. Again, that's on It's windy where I'm at, so I have to keep up with that wind. It's totally okay. Excellent. Argentina is awesome. We went to Argentina together. We had fun there. So I'm cool with it. So wait, is that why? I, mean, I didn't know where the uh, where this came from. Uh, we're, we're, we're going out with, with Despacito again. Is that why you picked this version of Despacito? Because we're going to Argentina. I, I did not read uh, where it's from or whatnot, but uh, no, I picked it because um, I wanted to give you something to feel happy about as we as we we leave out as we leave out. Um, I, I, I feel happy about this this bottle of wine I have. <laughs> okay, I appreciate the thought. But now I just have to come up with something else to harass you about as far as the music goes that you really don't want. <laughs> you really don't want to use. So, so we're going to lead up with some more uh, Despacito. Um, I can't remember this guy's name. Um, I feel bad. Uh, Mimo, Mirab- Mimo Mirabelli? Does that sound right? That sounds about right. It's a pretty hot track, I got to admit. I'm not opposed to it. Thing is, it starts out like it's actually the actual song until the accordion comes in. I looked really hard to find the polka version of that song. I started Googling uh, Justin Bieber polka, but I wanted to find that Spanish connection. Really? This is like not part of my house. 